0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell and welcome to back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, the Church, with a message titled "One Church for One World. So turning your Bibles to Matthew 16 verses 13 to 18 as we join Dr. Newfeld now.
1: We do live in a day in which many people, for many different reasons, claim faith in Christ but are estranged from the local church. It's interesting as well as troubling. And please don't misunderstand me. The reason for a two-week series on the church is not to berate those who feel disenfranchised and have dropped out. I don't mean to do that. But I do mean for those who are a part of the local church and for those who have dropped out to please hear and consider. So let's start today with the teaching of Jesus, and here I'm reading Matthew 16:13 to 18. Now, when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon bar for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, there's so much to think about in that brief passage of Scripture, and it's all life-transforming. Jesus takes his disciples for a long walk at several days until they arrive in a northern section of Israel in the region of Caesarea Philippi. A city that was thoroughly Greek and Roman and a city that was filled with idolatrous temples. And Jesus said, in the world of ideas and of many religious ideas, in a world where people are also talking about me, who do they think I am? And answers are given, even as answers are given today. Who is Jesus? So many people give so many different answers. Some say a great teacher, others a prophet. You know, some in the secular world seem to have an image of Jesus who would affirm any given lifestyle. Jesus is love, they say, and would approve of everything and everyone. Ideas abound, and as it was in the first century, so it is today. Jesus is still the center of discussion in the world of ideas. So many different philosophies and religions and political ideals. And in this confusing world comes this question over and over again, who is Jesus? And how about you, my followers, asked Jesus, who do you say that I am? And then comes that answer from Peter. He understands. The Father has revealed it to him. Peter knows fully. And then comes Jesus' response. I'm giving you a name, Peter, the rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. Now, those of you who know your theology will know the historic debate between Protestants and Catholics on this matter. But for my part, I'm happy just to say that Jesus surely did appoint Peter as the leader of the apostolic team, and that the apostles would give leadership to the universal church. But I don't think that leads us to a papacy. That's a full discussion for another time. That matter put aside, it is clear that Jesus wants Peter and the twelve to play a key role. They are to lead the universal church of Jesus. Jesus has come to build his church. The gates of hell aren't going to be able to hold it back. Now for our purposes, notice again what Jesus came to do. He came, yes he did, the real Jesus came to build his church. Now he didn't come to build a philosophy or to affirm your way of living. He came to call you to repent, turn to him, and become a part of the people of God. Now of course he came to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to die for the sins of his people, to reconcile them to the Father, to give them a new birth, and to give them the promise of eternal life. Yeah, he did that. But the people who received that would be a part of his church. So let's define what we mean when we say church. As a place of beginning, would you notice that Jesus did not say, I have come to build churches, but rather I've come to build my church singular. He came to build one church. See, the most common metaphor for church that's found in the New Testament is the metaphor body of Christ. This means that the church is the physical, visible representation of the invisible Christ on earth. The church does what Christ would do if he were bodily here today. But the body of Christ is also those people that are truly saved. That is, the church is comprised of those who have had their sins forgiven who are reconciled to the Father by faith in Christ. All people who are born again comprise the church, the body of Christ. And essentially that means at least three things. I mean, first, knowing Christ is the great task of life. Finding Jesus as the bread of life, the sole reason for our joy, the all-consuming passion for which we live. This is not the means to an end, but it is the greatest end to which we strive. Now, second, we're unable to do the work of Christ on our own strength. We, we need the Spirit to enable us to do the work of Jesus. And finally, we believe we can't carry out Christ's ministry alone as individuals. The church as a corporate body is alone qualified to do the work of Christ. What amazing and humbling truth. The church has been given both the assignment and the power to do the works that Christ had been doing. You know, at times, the New Testament speaks about the church as the global and universal body of Christ on earth, and when it speaks that way, it uses the word church in the singular. There is only one church for the whole world. But at other times, the New Testament uses the same word church and then puts it into the plural, churches. And when we read that, we read of local churches located at an address in a given city. And the distinction between those two concepts, that is, of the universal church and the local church, that's an extremely important distinction. And today I want to talk about the universal church. Notice, for instance, Acts 19.31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. Luke doesn't say that the churches in those regions were built up, but rather he has in mind that the various local gatherings together formed but one body. You know, the same theme is reinforced in Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And again, we notice that Christ loved only one church, not numerous churches in various localities. Or notice 1 Corinthians 12, 28, and God is appointed in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, so forth. Since the apostles were over every single local church, we assume, therefore, that Paul considered it right and accurate to call all the believers throughout the whole earth as one church. So from that vantage point, we assume that Jesus' words in Matthew 16, 18 refer not to a local but to the global universal church, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. But there's another truth here as well. A local church may indeed fail in overcoming the gates of hell, but the global church won't. While local churches may and have ceased to exist, the global church is altogether enduring. It will never fail. But that leads us to a very important question. Who belongs to the global church and for that matter, what's the relationship between the global church and the local church, the one that meets in a given city on a certain street with an address attached to it? See, at the heart of that question is the nagging problem of Christian unity. You know, Christians often wonder who belongs to the category of brother and sister. I mean, after all, we know that Jesus warned us, Matthew 7:21, not everyone who calls him Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. And additionally, there are very real divisions that make up the universal Christian church. As we view the scene today, we are aware that the global church is divided into three broad camps, Roman Catholic, Orthodox, and Protestant. But with the advent of liberal theology in the early 20th century, there are also now a great many people and local churches who call themselves Christians. Even so, they deny many of the historic Christian doctrines that include the inerrancy of Scripture, the Trinity, the Incarnation, the existence of miracles. Even the deity of Christ is denied by a lot of liberal Christians. And also, there are some churches that might even deny that there's one God. So I hope you see how confusing all of this can be. We may agree that there is but one universal church, but don't you see there's a problem? What is that one universal church? Who belongs and who doesn't? And still making matters even more difficult, what is the relationship between the universal church and the local church? Can one belong to a universal church and not belong to the local church? Many do think so. Are they right? And does that idea even make sense?
0: This month, Back to the Bible Canada's focus is on our international ministry partnerships. We wanna share the great thing God is doing beyond our borders. The goal for our international ministry efforts in February is to raise $100,000, and we invite you to prayerfully consider how you could help. This month, your gift can send a pastor in India or Sri Lanka to a Bible teaching conference. Just $50 covers all the costs associated or you could choose to participate in our $25,000 international match campaign. Every dollar you give will be matched up to $25,000. And all of this goes to support international partnership efforts, supplying Bible teaching resources, Bible audio programming, and Bible teaching conferences. Your generosity makes it all possible. For more information or to give, Call us at 1-800-663-2425, or visit backtothebible.ca.
1: One of the ways of coming to terms with the universal church is to make a distinction between the invisible church and the visible church. You know, in some ways, that sounds confusing. I mean, how can a church be invisible if the church, by definition, is the people of God? I mean, God may be invisible, but people aren't. And if the church is the body of Christ, we might say that the church is the visible representation of Christ on earth. And so to speak of an invisible church, well, it seems like a contradiction in terms. But if you think about it more, you should see that we're talking about two very different things see, we might say that the local church is the visible church, and the one universal church, that's the invisible church. In some ways, that should be self-evident. You see, the universal church of Jesus is made up of both the living and the dead. Yesterday, we spent some time thinking about Hebrews chapter 11, often called the Heroes hall of faith, great men and women of faith that have gone before us, whose lives still inspire us to this day. See, I also said that believing Israel is a part of Christ's church, his people for all times. See, we can speak about the universal church as the church on earth and the church in heaven at the same time. When a brother or sister in Christ dies, he or she is no longer a member of that local church, but he or she is still a member of the universal church, the people of God for all the ages. And so the universal church is the church both in heaven and on earth. And as such, there's a good section of the universal church that at present, we just simply can't see. It's invisible to us here on earth. But there's more to this visible slash invisible distinction. Let's think more deeply about the difference between a local church and the universal church. Some of you might remember how often the Bible mentions this ever prevalent problem of false teachers in a local church. Do you remember what Paul said to the elders or the pastors of the local church at Ephesus? Listen to his warning to them. is found in Acts 20, 29 to 30. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Yeah. The local church, ah, the problems, false teachers, even among their own pastors. And it's not just false teachers. You know, in Paul's writing to the Corinthian church, that local church had lots of problems. I mean, one man was openly sleeping with his stepmother. Others were suing each other in a court of law. I mean, we go on and on. And that's why in 1 Corinthians 5:13, Paul telling the local church to purge an evil person from among you. Or think of 1 John 2, verse 19. John writes, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they were all not of us. Yes, says John, they belong to a local church, but all the while that they were there. They are never a part of us. And it was only when they finally left us that it became apparent that their hearts were not with us the whole time. And that brings us back to this thing that many Bible teachers have called the invisible church. 2 Timothy 2.19 says, But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal, the Lord knows those who are his. And that means that Christ alone knows those who truly belong to him. It's not visible to us, but it is visible to him. And that's why Hebrews 12:23 speaks of the church as the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Yeah. No human role or list can account for the universal church. Only God knows the heart, and he in the end will identify those who are truly his. You know, we may see a visible local church, but we don't know to what degree the visible church corresponds to the invisible church, which is seen by God alone. no local church membership role can capture that invisible reality. Now, let's go one step further. Back in the year 381, major Christian leaders met together in Constantinople to consider this very question. And what came out of that meeting was called the First Council of Constantinople. The church leaders who met then preferred to speak of the authentic global church as containing four necessary marks. The true church, they said, is one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. So let's take each one of these statements in order. The true universal church of Jesus is one. The idea that the church is one comes from an earlier council of the Council of Nicaea in 325 in which they stated, we believe in one God, we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ. And of course there were biblical roots to that confession. Ephesians 4, 4 6. There is one body, one spirit, just as you are called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. You see, to say that the church is one is to proclaim not only the unity of the universal church, but to proclaim that the universal church has but one common confession of faith. The church doesn't have competing or diverse truth claims, but it only has one truth claim. I mean, to use Mormons as an example, I mean, we note that the Mormon church believes in many gods, even going so far as to say that human beings can become gods in their own right. Now, that kind of a theology doesn't fit into the first mark of the universal church. The universal church has but one God. We believe that the oneness of the church is a mystical union. It's a unity placed deeply into the hearts of all true believers. I mean, we would argue no human institution can provide that kind of a unity. It's provided by the Spirit of God. We believe this inner unity, of which Jesus prayed for in John 17, was never broken. You remember that Jesus prayed, John 17, that they may be one even as we are one. And since the Father answered every single prayer of His Son, we have to assume that the unity of the universal church simply can't be broken and it has never been broken. All true believers throughout the earth have one common confession of faith. Our organizational structures may be varied, but our unity in the truth is steadfast. And we're gonna say more about that as we go on. Second, the true universal church of Jesus is holy. And the word holy means to be set apart for by God. The true universal church rejects the morality of the world and clings to the call to holiness of our Savior. Ephesians 5.27 speaks of the marriage of Christ to his church, in which Christ is now purifying his church so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. All true believers are working out their salvation with fear and trembling, knowing in the end that it is God who is at work in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Third, the true universal church of Jesus is Catholic. And notice I didn't say Roman Catholic, I said Catholic. And the word Catholic actually simply means universal. This, more than any other word, speaks to the global nature of our faith. God has intended his one holy church to encompass the earth. And that's the one reason the church can't entertain racist attitudes. Ideally, every local church should include any racial group that exists in her locale. But the global church, as it grows and reaches all the nations of the world, must become as Christ intended it to be. Paul is confident that Christ has torn down the dividing walls of hostility between Jew and Gentile, and he's created one new man out of the two. There is one church for one world, and in his infinite wisdom, God has not given the world multiple ways to God, but has appointed Jesus as the world's universal savior and the church as his only universal family. Fourth, the true universal church is apostolic. The book of Ephesians gives us a picture of the unity of the church, a body in which Jews and Gentiles now equally belong. And then Ephesians 2, 19 to 20, sums it up. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. You know, in any building, the foundation is the supporting structure upon which everything else is built. Without a foundation, no building can stand. And this is essential to the life of the church. Unless a local church adheres to the teaching of the apostles, it will not endure. If you want to make it easily understandable what I've just said, say this. The universal church is biblical. Its beliefs and doctrines are founded not on human opinion. But rather on the never changing Word of God. Sola scriptura, we say, scriptures alone form the basis of what we believe. Such it is that Jesus came to build. And indeed, he's been building just that. The gates of hell will never prevail against this. And when we are invited to be a part of the people of God, we are invited into this global family. But what does that have to do with a local church? An answer. It has everything in the world to do with the local church. Stay tuned throughout these two weeks. We're going to make that abundantly plain. Don't degrade the local church. It is a part of the plan of God.
0: Thanks for your message, John. Let me ask you this. Is it important for us as believers to have a bigger picture of the church?
1: Yeah, it's important for us not to be separatists. And let me restate that. I mean, I think that we need to have, and here, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying Roman Catholic spirit. I'm saying a Catholic spirit, a universal spirit in which we view ourselves as related to all the brothers and sisters in Christ, both in heaven and on earth. And that means from all races, tribes, tongues, languages, every single ethnic group, that Christ is building a people for himself. These are our brothers and sisters, and we need to identify fully with them. And so, yes, no separatist spirit, but belonging to the whole of all that
0: Christ has called. That's our call. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Church, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. This month, Back to the Bible Canada's focus is on our international ministry partnerships. The goal for our international ministry efforts in February is to raise $100,000, and we invite you to prayerfully consider how you could help. This month, your gift can send a pastor in India or Sri Lanka to a Bible teaching conference. Just $50 covers all the costs associated or you could choose to participate in our $25,000 international match campaign. Every dollar you give will be matched up to $25,000. And all of this goes to support international partnership efforts, supplying Bible teaching resources, Bible audio programming, and Bible teaching conferences. Your generosity makes it all possible. For more information or to give, Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.